justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. Scott, a new study found that women are happier in relationships if they're more attractive than their partner. So what do you think? That's excellent news for the missus. And to all the gals from back in the day who had a chance at this ugly mug, eat your heart out. You know, if I had a dollar for every woman who found me unattractive, eventually some of those women would have found me attractive. <laughs> Do you really think that would be enough money? Honestly, probably not. It's, it's why we're doing a podcast and not a YouTube channel. I was blessed with a face made for radio. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the September 2017 edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, whose day job is Executive Director at the Texas Defender Service. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast today? I'm looking forward to talking about discovery. I can talk about that all day, all the time. First up, though, the Dallas and Houston Police Departments are experiencing large departures after the Texas legislature cut lucrative pension deals. The Houston PD has lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 veteran officers, and the Dallas Police Department has lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 600. Police officials in both cities suggest that these departures could pose a public safety threat. So, Scott, what's going on here, and should the public worry? Well, I don't think in either case the public should just start worrying or panicking yet, even though that's the message that they're getting from some of the police union officials and even some of the media types. First, the problem is much, much more acute in Dallas than it is in Houston. In Dallas, where they're 600 down, that's actually down from their peak, which was 10 years ago. And so the other thing that's happened over 10 years is that overall, crime has continued to drop over most of that period. There's been a slight uptick in violent crime the past couple of years in Dallas, but property crime continued to decline. And that's after a pretty steep decline over a decade. And so it's hard to say, okay, this is causing any specific increase because they were also down a bunch of officers before then. But it is the case that Dallas is losing a bunch of officers to other cities, and they had relied on these very, very generous pension benefits to make up for low wages compared to the other departments around them. So that's part of what was happening is the pension had been the big draw. The other thing that happened in Dallas that's unique and very, very different from Houston is that they made these unbelievably unwise pension investments. They invested in all these luxury real estate projects mm-hmm. all over the country and, and really the world. They had, they, it's all the places you would think they would want to go visit on vacation. So <laughs> like they would, they would get you know apartments in Hawaii so they could go out and just monitor their investment. Well, who wouldn't want to do that? And then after the real estate bust, all the bad investments were exposed and the true cost of these unbelievably high benefits became more apparent. Apparent. Okay. So the the fund in Dallas, it sounds like, wasn't operating like with the market, if that makes sense. Like it was underperforming. But wasn't there also an issue with the savings accounts where people could basically put money in an account and get a rate of interest that was much higher than they would get anywhere. That's exactly right. It's really kind of an amazing situation. 
these were called drop accounts. I forget what drop stands for. It was an acronym for something. But in essence, they were savings accounts that gave police officers the ability to get much, much higher interest rates than anywhere else they could remotely turn for an investment to the point where officers were taking out mortgages, second mortgages on their home and putting the money in these drop accounts because the interest rate that they were paying was so much lower than the interest they were getting on the savings accounts. And what's really going on here, interestingly enough, was described, almost predicted to a T, in a book that came out just this spring by one of the Texas Police Union Movement's most important leaders, Ron DeLord. Ron DeLord was the executive director at the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Texas for many years. That's the state's largest or one of the two largest collaborations of police unions. It's mm-hmm. an association with many local police unions under it. And about 20 years ago or so, he and two other gentlemen wrote a book that became sort of the Bible for police union organizing. Interestingly enough, it was all based on the philosophies of Saul Alinsky and all this very radical, in-your-face, union, aggressive tactics that that is is really what he was suggesting. Well, now he's co-written a book with another former union official named Ron York called Law Enforcement, Police Unions, and the Future. Educating Police Management and Unions About the Challenges Ahead. And this came out earlier this year in 2017. And just to give you a flavor of what he's talking about, he opens with actually an homage to Robert O. Keene, the great Texas singer-songwriter. A message to police unions, it says. The road does not go on forever and the party eventually ends. So that's his, like, literally his opening salvo for, for this book. And his argument is essentially, and I'm going to just quote here for a moment, the pillars that supported first responders receiving high wages, benefits not available in the private sector, Cadillac health insurance at work and in retirement, and a defined benefit pension that allowed for a guaranteed pension for life had been eroding for decades. And without these underlying pillars, any sustained attack has a good chance to succeed. And in truth, that's really what we saw this legislative session when we saw retrenchment in police pension benefits. He goes on to explain why he thinks this happened. The truth is the Great Recession of 2008 merely pulled the curtain back, exposing the true costs of public sector wages, benefits, insurance, and pensions. This exposure caused a negative feeding frenzy against public employees by the media. And he goes on to say, remarkably, again, quoting, First responders went from the heroes of 9-11 to welfare queens in less than a decade. Yeah, we haven't necessarily gotten to welfare queen yet, but we are looking at a situation where police officers are being compensated in a manner that the cities can't sustain. And that's far, far greater than what the average taxpayer faces. For example, almost every taxpayer has had their defined benefit pension plan, if they ever had one, erased and they now have a 401k if they are lucky well these police unions get payouts with cost of living increases for life that's unheard of anymore no one in the private sector the average taxpayers are simply not getting that anymore and one of the themes of this book was that police union leaders have to basically face irrational demands from their unions to maintain these wages and benefits, even in the face of no one else in society having similar benefits. So again, to quote from the same Ronda Lord book, 
Police union officials often have to listen to rants from officers protesting any change in their wages, benefits, insurance, leave time, or pensions. The officers create their own reality and refuse to accept anything less. Many officers appear to be disconnected from the economic pain and stress faced by taxpayers in the private sector. And so Ron DeLord was warning them in his book that there was going to be a comeuppance for this sort of behavior, and now there has been. Well, look forward to watching this story as it unfolds. Next up, Texas Fifth Court of Appeals out of Dallas ruled that a prosecutor who interviewed a witness and concealed the statement from the defense violated a discovery order based on the Michael Morton Act. The prosecutor tried to claim that the witness statement was attorney work product, but the court ruled that she was engaging in trial by ambush when she withheld the statement and that the interview should have been turned over to the defense. The Fifth Court of Appeals, the Fifth Texas Court of Appeals, Mm -hmm. ruled that witness statements were not the prosecutor's thoughts or impressions but rather underlying factual information that should have been turned over. The Texas District and County Attorneys Association recommended, based on this case, that in similar future situations, prosecutors should, quote, notify the defense that they had interviewed witnesses but are withholding those statements. So, Mandy, is that good advice? No, not in this situation. I think that this ruling is very clear that statements by a witness, even if they're disclosed directly to a district attorney or an assistant district attorney, are still statements for purposes of discovery and that they don't fall within the work product doctrine. So what might be a better compromise is that if a prosecutor believes that a portion of their notes from the interview, for example, if they're writing down their impressions of the witness's credibility, that you might want to redact those sections of your notes, but the rest of it, the the portions of your notes that are documenting the factual information that's being reported need to be disclosed to the defense. And I'd say you probably would also want to notify the court that you're invoking this privilege. Well, that was a very measured assessment. You know, part of the reason... (laughs) Part of the reason that I pointed this out and wanted to talk about this is that I know that prosecutors overstating how much discovery they should be allowed to withhold um, sort of pushes your berserker button <laughs> and, and, and sets you off. So I thought I would get, get more of a rise out of you than that I did. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm trying to be restrained these days. Well, that was very restrained. Very you did restrained. very well. Yeah. Well, it was also a limited question, right? <laughs> Well, to me, what I was struck by, and the reason that I pointed it out to you in the first place, it was so odd that the ruling was so very specific that the statements, the actual witness statements themselves, the things between the quote marks or the things where you said the witness told me X or an oral statement where the witness had said something to the prosecutor, that you have to disclose that. So then to say, go ahead and withhold it and then ask again for basically the same ruling struck me as weird. And that's that's why I thought it might set you off a little more than it did. Well, I think that part of the thing about the decision that's a little odd is that they really, I mean, well, it's not odd. The court tried to avoid engaging in any kind of statutory analysis in the decision. So they really focused on the discovery order that was issued in this case and mm. said that the prosecutor was willfully violating the discovery order rather than going into the more general responsibilities under the act but the big meat of it that's important for prosecutors is that i think that this is another decision in a long line of decisions that says that you can't 
have an end run around your dis- disclosure requirements simply because you're the person interviewing a witness. That those are still statements for purposes of discovery and it's not work product. Got it. Uh, moving on. In our final top story, the Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on October 2nd will hear oral arguments related to an order by Federal District Judge Lee Rosenthal, who declared Harris County's pay for release money bail system unconstitutional. So, Scott, what's at stake in this litigation? Really, there's an incredible amount at stake on many levels here. And I know the bail bond industry think that their economic future is the most important thing that is at jeopardy. But really, this will be one of the biggest changes you could imagine for Harris County's local system. And that's one of the largest court systems in the country. So so it's a really big deal. As I think about this case, I keep thinking that there was a prosecutor on the Texas District and County Attorney Association user form mm-hmm. who was worrying about the question of, well, what's going to happen to all these people who we arrest for misdemeanors and take them to jail and they plea out for time served? Are they going to be willing to have a plea if they're already out of jail? Or are we going to have to take them all the way to trial? Are people going to be more likely to press their rights if we don't have that leverage? And he worried, well, what's going to happen to court dockets when that happens? Yeah. That's a that's a legitimate question Concern. because right now they've been suppressing their court dockets and maximizing the plea rate by using the coercive pressure of jail on behalf of the prosecutors to say, okay, you can stay in jail and fight for your rights and we'll go to trial in six months or you can sign right here and get out for time served. Yeah. And that's going to be a huge difference. It's I'm, I'm reminded of in Alice in Wonderland where the Queen of Hearts, you know, said, no, 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 you know, verdict first, trial later, you know, punishment first, <laughs> you know, verdict later. That's what we're doing here. We're punishing first. And just if you get a verdict, great. And if you get a dismissal, oh, sorry that you were you were incarcerated, but you could get to go home now. And and that's yeah. the system. Well, it's, if most people for misdemeanors are start to get out. That's going to change that dynamic significantly. So I also should mention toward the end of my time at the Innocence Project of Texas, I started thinking and coming across more and more examples of how this coercive pressure of pretrial incarceration would put pressure on people to accept plea bargains for things they didn't actually do. Yeah, no, I think that there there have been some studies that have shown that sort of the wrongful plea rate, you're going to see rise as the stakes are lower. So if, if it's just getting out and time served, usually I think, sadly, a lot of misdemeanor defendants are also unaware and uncounseled of the collateral consequences of a conviction. So they might think like, okay, there's nothing more that will be done to me. This won't carry forward. So I think you're right that we're going to see the plea rate drop. I'm not sure that you're going to see an explosion in the number of cases that go to trial, but you might see defendants being able to negotiate better deals. That's right. And more probably a higher dismissal rate, I would guess, too, yes. if you can actually make them have to prove it instead of just reacting to that pressure. But, you know, in Harris County, they've had those uh, 300 or so exonerations based on field tests of drugs that came back later as not drugs. And you listen to law enforcement and they say, oh, well, all those were people trying to sell fake drugs. But according to the people in the public defender's office, while that's true of some of them, it's also true of many others that 
they did think they were innocent and just pled to get out. Yeah. They maybe already had a record. They were sort of arresting the usual suspects to begin with. And so, you know, what's one more thing? I just want out. Yeah, or and, you know, or sadly, I think in some cases, you saw that defense attorneys were counseling their clients to take the pleas in order to get out. That's exactly right. So that's the kind of pressure that is relieved on defendants. And, and I think you're going to see a really different system once that transition is over. I'd be surprised if you didn't. Yeah. Coming up in a segment called Forensic Follies, Mandy and I consider a law professor's argument that Texas junk science writ is too restrictive, as well as an important development on the DNA mixture issue we talked about in the August podcast. But first, a quick word from Just Liberty. JustLiberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me. JustLiberty.org JustLiberty.org Hi, this is Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty and co-host of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast along with Amanda Marzullo. On Wednesday evening, September 20th from 6 to 8.30, we're hosting a launch party for podcast listeners and supporters at the ATX Factory Group Workspace off of Cesar Chavez in East Austin. Come join us. It's a great chance to learn more about Just Liberty, meet our team, and celebrate the launch of the newest media institution in Texas criminal justice reform movement. For more info, check out Just Liberty's Facebook page. It's good for me. JustLiberty.org JustLiberty.org Next up, a new game segment we're dubbing Forensic Follies. In this episode, we're talking about an issue I'm calling Junk Science Rich and the Goldilocks Problem. In the last hurrah section of our August episode, you'd suggested the law review article by a UC Davis professor named Edward M. Winkleried, who I'm going to call Professor Winky because I can't wrap my tongue around his name very often. You'd suggested there were some problems with Professor Winky's analysis, and so let's dig into them. Professor Winky analyzed five hypothetical justifications for granting relief under a junk science writ. Then, based on that, he suggested that Texas habeas corpus statute was crafted too narrowly, while California's new junk science writ, which was created soon after the one in Texas, he claims was drafted too broadly. So California's writ is too soft, ours is too hard, and Professor Winky is looking for one that's just right. <laughs> so, Mandy, you and I both have a lot of history with the statute in Texas. Tell me, now that you've had a chance to look at his article more closely, what did you think of his arguments? Yeah, I, I'm going to stick to my guns here. I still think that there are some problems <laughs> with his analysis. When it comes to the Texas statute, for example, I, I'm not saying that it's perfect. And I'm not sure if we've hit a point where we've hit, where in Texas we're just right. But we're certainly not as hard as he thinks he is. Um, part of the issue is that the Texas statute provides that you're entitled to a new trial if the science or changes in the science or the forensic examiner's own knowledge of that science contradict the testimony that was admitted at your trial. And he says that that requires a full denial of the testimony in, in question. And 
that's not exactly how that word has been interpreted in Texas. So contradicts has a few, I think, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it has three different definitions. And one of them is just a mere inconsistency. So if, if it just doesn't square with the testimony in a way that is, in this case, that is consistent or makes sense with the prior testimony at trial. And it seems so far, the Court of Criminal Appeals has been applying the latter definition. So in the Robbins case, we saw that that was a case where the medical examiner testified at trial that based on her autopsy findings, the case involved a homicide. After looking at the case, after several years of experience, she came back and said, you know, I had that wrong. It's not necessarily a homicide, but it's undetermined. We can't make that inference or that conclusion based on the evidence that's in front of us. So that's not a full rebuttal of the fact that it was a homicide, but it certainly is inconsistent. Right. Professor Winky, he was describing it as though you had to have actually a full exoneration by the evidence for it to maybe apply under Texas writ. I have to say, I, I was the Innocence Project of Texas's policy director when we passed this bill and, and was involved in the negotiations with this. And the word contradict actually came from uh, Senator Joan Huffman's office. And we were in negotiations with the Harris County DA's office. And Justin Wood, who you know very well, was um, mm-hmm. was on the other side of the table. And we talked about all this language pretty carefully before we installed it and what your definition, how you're defining contradict as being more about an inconsistency, less about a complete rebuttal was definitely how we thought of it at the time we were negotiating it. And it seems to be how the court has interpreted it so far. And and, and another piece of this is that the, the testimony in question, I believe in California, as well as in Texas, I mean, I can definitely say this about Texas, that it's going to be viewed in the context of the case. You still have to show that it's not just an inconsistency in the science, but something that goes to the heart of the case against you. So I think both of these standards are are a little bit more robust or a bit different from, I think, the way Winky characterized it. Right. He seemed to imply that California really would just let you out if there was even the most modest, you know, shading on the science or that if there was anything that called it into question at all. But you're right. It does still have to have bearing on guilt or innocence. It, 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 can't, it can't be so far off the beaten path there. And it's hard to imagine that the California courts are interpreting it as liberally as he's suggesting just like the Texas courts are not interpreting contradict as limiting as he's suggesting. So, Following up on a forensic story from our August podcast, we had discussed how private companies are using proprietary math models to analyze DNA mixture evidence. A similar proprietary model created by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office was being used all over the country, and including at least one Texas county. New York courts recently required the New York Medical Examiner's Office to turn their model over to a defense expert who reviewed the evidence in the judge's chambers. The model turned out to be flawed and poorly programmed. So, Scott, what are the implications for DNA mixtures and how they're analyzed in Texas? This is a fascinating development here because the case that we talked about last month involved DNA mixture evidence being interpreted by a proprietary system called Star Mix, S-T-R Mix. 
And we also talked about another proprietary system called True Allele. Well, the New York City Medical Examiner had their proprietary model that they were actually selling out on, like they were they were consultants, and I think there's at least one other model out there. Mm-hmm. And so, what all these models had in common is that no one really knew what was inside the black box, and mm-hmm. everyone just says trust us and some courts have in the case that we looked at last month the texas courts had simply admitted that evidence and assumed that it was good and really had not performed much of a gatekeeping function in fact they had allowed in contradictory evidence from different types of dna testing of these mixture analyses and just told the jury you figure it out which i thought was rather astonishing well This is the first one of those black box models that someone has actually looked at and to find out, hey, it's not quite all that in a bag of chips. Maybe that means these others we ought to open up too. And Texas courts have not required this yet, but Texas is really where this DNA mixture issue has come to the fore and erupted most violently. And so it makes you wonder why Texas courts haven't done it yet and when they're going to start. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think part of the issue is that it's becoming it's becoming apparent that the range of error isn't quite as narrow as they were saying. And also what's sort of interesting about this is that people have known for a while that this software has potential problems. I think at a hearing with the New York Forensic Science Commission, Barry Shett kind of presciently said, you know, the day of reckoning is coming. That's right. <laughs> that was in that New York Times ProPublica article that, that sort of exposed all this about the medical examiner's method. And Barry actually went off on those guys three years ago, and, and it was prescient. He was absolutely right that, you know, here we are now because they didn't do due diligence on the front end and make sure that the math was right and didn't allow other experts to check the math. Here we are three years later having to go back and look at and redo cases, just like in Texas. They're having to recalculate their their mixture analyses on all their cases. And it's, you know, it's, it's better to measure twice, cut once, basically. Yeah, I think so. And, and that we might never get to a point. I think that that's part of the problem, too, is the, like the criminal justice system, including a medical examiner's office, is you know, made up of people. So there's always going to be error. And so that it's something that's going to have to be constantly litigated. Uh, And the reason there's always going to be error, this is not the same as a one-on-one DNA match or, or a DNA match in a rape kit where you know the victim's DNA. And so they can pull that out and get to the assailant. DNA mixtures, many times we're talking about three, four, five or more contributing people to the DNA mixture. And the truth is that the analytical methods are not cut and dried as they are in the one-on-one matches. A one-on-one match in DNA is as good and a bit of evidence as we have in the criminal justice system. DNA mixture evidence requires a subjective judgment call by the analyst, and quite frankly, the mathematical models and methods being used are so far above almost everyone performing this at the workbench in the lab that all they can do is just plug the numbers into the black box without really understanding what's happening or how, you know, an analysis might need to be adjusted 
because of circumstance. And so the understanding that DNA mixture really is this subject, it's much more like comparing ballistics. It's more like comparing striations in bullets to see if they were shot by the same gun where someone's looking under a microscope and trying to match them through just the human brain's pattern recognition function. That's more like what's going on with the DNA mixture analysis than the very rigorous scientific process that's going on in a one-on-one match. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I am ready. The Harris County Criminal Courthouse may be closed for eight months after Hurricane Harvey. How will this affect the justice system? I think it's going to create a backlog that's going to take several months, if not even over a year, to clear. There are several cases that were scheduled to start trial right now, essentially, including one death penalty case. The Criminal Courthouse was the worst flooded building in town, they said. Uh, My heart goes out to them. During hurricanes, Katrina and Ike, local jail prisoners were stranded in flooded facilities in New Orleans and Galveston. Did anything like that happen during Hurricane Harvey? Allegedly, prisoners in Beaumont, federal prisoners, were stranded in flooding waters. That's now been disputed by the Bureau of Prisons, but that's what it sounds like went on from emails that came out from prisoners to their family members. And then in Harris County, the county jail actually let prisoners out from their probation facilities during the height of the flooding and just said, we can't feed you, we can't take care of you, go out into the flooded waters. TDCJ, I should give them credit, they actually did move all their prisoners out of the flooding areas and were very conscientious about that and got them all out well ahead of any significant problems. Federal inmates in a flooded prison in Beaumont let the outside world know about dangerous conditions there through a monitored email system designed to let them keep in touch with their families. Should state inmates in Texas prisons have email access? Absolutely. Email is important. I mean, in this case, I think it just demonstrates it's an important function just in and of itself. Like, we would never have known about the dangerous conditions in this facility if it weren't for the email access that the prisoners had. But email also allows prisoners to remain in touch with their families despite long distances, which also facilitates their ties to their community and helps with reentry. So it makes sense both from a constitutional standpoint, I'd say, and for a policy reentry requirement. Moving on, the Brennan Center found that murder rates in America's 30 largest cities are down this year, led by Houston, where murders are down 20%. Are you encouraged by this news, Scott? Now, it's always good news when fewer people are murdered, there's no doubt. But I think the one lesson to take here is that we shouldn't get too excited when the numbers go down for a half year's numbers, just like we shouldn't get too excited when we see a one-year increase or a two-year increase. These crime numbers really take a long time to interpret them. You, haven't, you don't really understand what's happening until you have a several-year trend. So the Urban Institute found that the longest sentences given to prisoners are getting even longer. Does that make us safer, Mandy? Probably not. Almost definitely not. There's a lot of data out there that says that there are diminishing returns on these longer sentences and people age out of crime. More than 7,000 Texans have signed Just Liberty's petition to DPS requesting new rules to limit arrests for Class C misdemeanors. What's next? The Public Safety Commission will consider our request at their October meeting. And at this point, with lots of bipartisan support, I think we've got a decent shot. All right, so we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzillo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. 
We'll be back next month with another edition of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen.